Keep your hearts in that moment. God has taken us to a very, very holy moment. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are overwhelmed by your grace that you would reach into sinful lives like ours and rescue us with the costly and precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on our behalf. What amazing love you have showered and lavished upon us. And can it be that I should gain because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, life eternal. Freedom from sin, sins forgiven, guilt taken away, doubt banished, faith granted, new life breathed into our lives, and the promise the promise of eternal life with Christ forevermore. So to this, O oh God, we pay you tribute with our praise, our hallelujahs, our thanksgivings. For you are truly a great and awesome and mighty God and we love you. Now, O oh Father, help us to listen eagerly and intently to your word that we might hide it in our hearts and live it out in our lives by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As I was researching famous last words for the sermon this morning, here's a few that caught my eye. Familiar names, famous names that you would know. These are the last words alleged that are recorded of them. Frank Sinatra. Anybody know him? I'm losing. That's the last thing he said. George Orwell, the author of 1984, whose actual name was Eric Arthur Blair, said this, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. Nostradamus, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. That's the one time he was right. Marie Antoinette, the last queen of France before the French Revolution, as she stepped on her executioner's foot on the way to the guillotine. Pardonnez-moi, monsieur. Leonardo da Vinci, 
I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Imagine. Buddy Rich, who was a drummer, as he was being wheeled into surgery from which he died of the complications, was asked by a nurse, is there anything you can't take? Rich replied, yeah, country music. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So um, Johnny Ace, a rhythm and blues singer who died in 1954, while playing with a pistol during a break in his concert set, his last words were, I'll show you that it won't shoot. Most of you have heard of the last words of Christ on the cross. In fact, that's what we sort of think of when we think of the last words of Jesus. We think of the famous seven last words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Woman, here is your son. Today you will be with me in paradise. I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into my hands I commit my spirit, and then it is finished. But maybe most of us have not realized that that was not the last word. Those were not the last words of Jesus. Those were the last words on the cross. In fact, after his resurrection, Jesus had eight more famous words. And for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to look at is, what did Jesus really say before he left us and went back to heaven. And uh, what did he say uh, after, the, after his resurrection, his famous last words? And so, interestingly, um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We want to look at four of them this morning. Uh, what happened on Easter evening is what we're looking at. What happened Easter evening and what did Jesus say? This is Easter evening we're talking about in John chapter 20. We're looking at verses 19 to 23 this morning. In fact, there's eight different sayings that Jesus offered between now and his resurrection that are recorded. Peace to you. Um, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Stop doubting and believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Feed my sheep and follow me. So Jesus offered all of these very, very important last words to us as he commissioned us, as he commissioned his disciples and commissioned us. So um, let's look at John chapter 20, verse 19 to 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of God. 
Well, the disciples were in total lockdown. Easter Sunday night, okay? This is Easter Sunday night. Good Friday, the crucifixion, crucifixion had taken place. Jesus had been placed in the grave. Some of them had seen the res, risen Christ, a few. We think only two of the disciples. And now it's on Easter morning, and now it's Easter evening. The disciples have witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. They are pretty certain that the religious elite will be coming for them. Because after they take out Jesus, they're going to take out the whole Jesus gang and get this thing done with once and for all. So they're huddled in fear, anticipating the worst. And on Easter evening, Jesus Christ miraculously came and stood in their midst. The door was locked. And he delivered his last words to them that we're looking at today, which is really John's version of the Great Commission. Each of the gospel writers and in the book of Luke, or book of Acts, which is written by Luke, there is a reference to the Great Commission. Now over these decades of ministry that I have shared with you, there is something I have taught you over and over again that if God says something once, it's important. If God says something twice, it's quite important. If God repeatedly says something, it's very, very, very important. Now the Great Commission is given five times. Where do you put that on the important scale? Should God's people be about the Great Commission? Absolutely. So what I wanna show you this morning is uh, three big time mission realities out of this particular uh, text here. Three big time mission realities. The fear was palpable as Jesus entered that room. And he says to them, what sounds like a normal greeting, shalom, written in Greek, irene, peace to you, or peace to you, yes, peace to you. Now this is a normal, this is a normal greeting that, that the, uh, the, the Jewish people still today greet one another, shalom, peace to you. This is not the normal shalom alechem that the Jewish people offer. Jesus is stressing something far different this particular night when he says to them, peace to you. It is now literally, he is saying, truly well with you. All of these greetings, all of these years, shalom, were in anticipation of the peace that I have now brought because of my death because of what happened this weekend, Jesus stands there that Sunday night in their presence, saying to them peace in an entirely different way, with an entirely different meaning than they had ever heard before. Truly, peace has come to you because the promised gift of his kingdom is now enacted and it is peace with God to you. Now that it is finished, 
Because it is finished, because the work of the cross work of Jesus Christ is finished, now peace to you. The risen Lord is the crucified sacrifice. Our Savior is a scarred one. He showed them. That's why it says here in the text, he showed them as he said, peace to you. He showed them his hands and his side. He showed them the the scars in his wrists and the spear hole in his side to connect the peace that he is now offering to them to his crucifixion and that truly standing in their midst is the living, risen Savior. It says in the text they were overjoyed. Why would they not be? It, it seemed like such a small aside and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw Jesus. I don't know how to, I don't know how to, to sort of enact that with you. I don't know how to act that out, but to say they were overjoyed has got to be an understatement. They are looking into their future. The risen Savior is standing in their midst saying peace to you, showing them his wounded hands and his wounded side. He's very much alive. He just enters the room miraculously. And we're left with no other conclusion but to say to those who are in Christ, this is our future. Death does not end our lives. Christ is alive. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 talks about the justification. He says, he says that there, we are, if, if we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Propitiation is finished. What does that mean? The wrath of God that was upon us who were at war with God has been absorbed by Christ on our behalf on the cross so that God's wrath is no longer on us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can say that. If you have been justified, if you have been declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In case you didn't get the point, Paul reiterates it. It's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So the first, this peace that we have, this peace with God that brings joy to them, and they didn't fully understand at that moment. They were just ecstatic that Jesus was alive standing in their midst. But this peace with God has been made for us by God. Nothing we did. There's nothing that we can do to make peace with God. Peace with God had to be made on God's terms. And his terms were the requirement of a perfect sacrifice on your and my behalf. So when we say something like, have you made peace with God? We're kind of saying it the wrong way. Have you received the peace that God has made for you is the right way. God has done everything to make peace for us and you either accept it on his terms and conditions or you do not receive the peace of God. 
the peace with God. Peace with God has to be on his terms. Otherwise, you stay at war with God. And that's what Jesus is bringing to a conclusion here, reminding them that peace with God is because of the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and the side that was punctured on the cross. Blood was shed for you and for me. Now, there may be many people who are at war with you. There may be much tribulation in your life. There much, might be, uh, your body might be failing you. But this one grand reality remains true. No matter what your circumstances, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are at peace with God. And God is at peace with you. There is no better state to be in, in this world, no matter what your circumstances, than to know for certain that you are at peace with God. Are you at peace with God this morning, beloved? Those of you watching, is there anyone here who is not at peace with God this morning? You know you're at peace with God because you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I, I urge you, I beg you this morning to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ and be at peace with God. But not only, he, he, he actually says it twice here, and at the end, he, he says in verse 21, he says, again, Jesus said, peace with you. Again, he says it to him, stressing it to them. Again, remember, once he says it, it's important. Twice he stresses it. Why does Jesus stress? Jesus stresses peace with God because peace with God is the foundation of your ability to carry out the Great Commission. You must be certain of how you acquire peace with God and that you are at peace with God to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around you. It's the foundation from which we minister. We minister from a foundation. It's the foundation from which we live our lives. It's the foundation from which we face adversity. It is the foundation that Jesus paid for with his precious blood that you and I might have peace with God always in our lives. And so he repeats it to draw attention to the emphasis. And he's looking into their fearful faces, terrorized by what might be coming their way. And he says to them again, peace to you. Not only do you have peace with God, but you have acquired the peace of God. This is different. Peace with God is to know that I am in the right state with Him. And that He is at peace with me. But the peace of God is the peace that God himself enjoys, always. God is always at peace. And you have now the peace of God. You don't have to live men in terror and fear. You don't have to live women in terror and fear. 
You have been offered the peace of God. God has taken you into his family as sons and daughters who he loves with infinite love and grants you the peace of God. That's what Paul picks up to the Philippians when he says, don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. And then he says, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, which, which doesn't make sense on the basis of the circumstances that you're in, will guard your hearts, your feelings, in other words, and your minds, your thinking. Aren't those the two places of battle for us? Our feelings and our thinking? When things are difficult in our lives, isn't that the war? Isn't that where Satan battles us? Isn't that where our own doubts rise up? Fears assail us. Unknown information is coming our way. We don't know what's in front of us. And we're thinking and we're thinking incorrectly and we're feeling and we're feeling incorrectly. And Jesus says to the men who there, by the way, hey, listen, He's commissioning them. Think about it for a second. Would he waste his time commissioning a bunch of guys to take the gospel who in five minutes were going to be killed by the religious elite? Now listen, listen, he has a plan and a ministry for them. Yes, there are difficult circumstances coming their way. But as he looks into their fearful eyes at that moment and says to them, peace to you. The peace of God is with you. The world in its worst cannot overcome God. Do you believe that? The world in its worst cannot overcome God? Or are you thinking and feeling that God can't take care of your circumstance? All things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. I think most of us embrace peace with God fairly easily when we understand the gospel. I think most of us struggle to experience the peace of God. And beloved, it's a package deal. It really is. Those at peace with God are the same people who enjoy peace of God. Embrace it all. It's his promised gift to you of his kingdom, of what it means to belong to him. Well, from this foundation of, foundational platform of settled peace, Jesus goes on and says in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He gives the mantle of mission to us. Now some take this commissioning of Jesus to mean that we are to do the same things Jesus did. In other words, we're to practice healings, we're to 
cast out demons, we're to engage in miracles of all kinds. Is that, is that what Jesus says here? Look, look at his words carefully. As the Father has sent me, also I am sending you. The, the key phrase is in the way that the Father sent me, I am sending you. How I have been sent, I am sending you. How I am the sent one, I am sending you. In the same way the Father sent me. So, so the question that we really have to ask of this phrase that Jesus says is, what's the commission comparison here? The as, the also is referring to how Jesus was sent. In the same way the Father sent me, in other words, he says, I'm also sending you. So how did Jesus demonstrate his sending, his sent? He demonstrated it by dependence on the Father. He demonstrated it by meticulous obedience to the Father's word. He demonstrated it by bearing witness to the truth. Remember, he's speaking to Pilate. I came to speak to the truth, he says. So these are the three key operational ways Jesus says that we are to carry forth the Great Commission as well. In the same way that the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is sending us so that we demonstrate complete dependence on the Father meticulous obedience to the word of God and a commitment to bearing witness to the truth. That's our primary sending initiative from Jesus here. Healings and miracles and casting out of demons and all of that is God work, to be sure. But Jesus is telling us to go forth in the same way he went forth. This, I, I raise this, this is important because over the years, over the centuries, people can move easily and groups of people can move easily away from actually carrying forth the gospel commission and just settle on doing nice things for people. Because Jesus did really nice things for people. And so it becomes eventually just a social enterprise and not a gospel one. The gospel is proclaiming and bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and what he did for sinners. We're gonna see that at the end when he talks about forgiveness. So it's critically important that the mission of Jesus, and I'm gonna say it again, the mission of Jesus is all about depending on the Father meticulous obedience to the word of God and bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. And then all of this God work will come from that. 
That's important. So you and I are being sanctified by our dependence on the Father, by our obedience to God's word, witness bearing to the truth. In fact, in John 17, 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prays about this. In verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prayed that we might be sanctified by our meticulous obedience to the word of God. That's what this is. And in being sanctified, we're experiencing new life now. We are experiencing freedom from sin now. We are experiencing what it means to eternally live right now. Becoming salt and light and then passing that on to others. How did Jesus do this? How was he sent? He was sent from heaven to come to be among us, to go into the world. In John chapter 1, John sets the tone in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. How do we carry forth the great commission? We go to the world. Jesus left glory to clothe himself in humanity. That's a huge condescension. And, and, and as unfamiliar and unfriendly as the world is and is increasingly becoming, and many of us are starting to think, maybe we should pull back, maybe we should huddle, maybe we should retrench, maybe we should hide out in here. That's not the Great Commission. Jesus was sent into the unfamiliar and the unfriendly to be where the people were, to be where darkness was. Who did he hang out with? He hung out with people who needed him. And we have to keep wading into an unfamiliar and an unfriendly world for mission. Think about this. If the disciples continued to hide out and spend the rest of their lives likely in the upper room, would you and I know Jesus Christ? You know, even in our world, there's a good Samaritan law. You've heard of the Good Samaritan Law? It's more in operation in certain states in the U.S., but we have an Ontario Good Samaritan Law, believe it or not. In, in other words, if you were to leave the parking lot today and you witnessed a car accident and you uh, saw some people in great need of medical attention and you had medical experience and you helped out and something turned bad, you are protected from negligence by the Good Samaritan Law of Ontario because you stepped in and helped. Now, I don't know how you view lost people, but I view them as a car wreck. They're gasping for their last breath. And even our world thinks People should step in and help. How much more important is it for us who see lost people 
going to hell to step in and seek to rescue them from their lost state through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. They even use a biblical term. The, good, the world uses, a, North American law uses a biblical term, the Good Samaritan Law. Where do you think they got that from? They got it from the Bible. Jesus is calling us to go to the world, to pursue their salvation, secondly, efforts and results. Jesus didn't just come to seek the lost, did he? He came to seek and to save. Now, we can't save anybody. You and I can't save anybody. But we have been granted the mission of talking about the one who can. And that mission is to pursue their salvation, not just seek people. Well, we put it out there. I, I put the gospel out there. No, no, no. It's pursue it. It's pursue it to decision. It's, it's to... It's to be persistent, to not give up, to keep pursuing the gospel with people, even if you've told them. The effort, what I see here is the effort necessary to employ, implore people to be saved and to follow through in their faith, to be rooted and grounded in the faith. Listen, I heard of 11 kids coming to know Christ this week in just junior high. Is that not great news? And there may be more, I don't know. But the pursuit of their salvation is not over. The pursuit of their salvation is in discipleship, rooting and grounding their baby faith in a, in, in a, a confirmed, committed, settled conviction on Jesus Christ. Because it's not that you were once saved that matters it's that you are still living by faith when you die that matters the perseverance of someone who claims to know Christ must finish the race knowing Christ so our call is to make certain to pursue their salvation and then thirdly to glorify Christ before them so we are called to go to the world to pursue their salvation and to glorify Christ before them. Jesus said in his prayer in John 17 and verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So when we ask, when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, also I'm sending you. I glorified the Father. That's how I acted when I was sent. And that's how I want you to act when you're sent. Every day of your life is to be glorifying Jesus Christ. You are to be an example of the glory of Jesus Christ in your kindness, in your grace, in your forgiveness, in your compassion. Do you and I daily make Christ compelling? Do you and I daily make the gospel look good and appealing and attractive? That's how Jesus made the gospel look. That's how Jesus made his father look. I have glorified you, Father, Jesus said, in the way you sent me. 
and so I'm sending you. So the peace of God is the foundation to the commission. And with that, it says in verse 22, he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I have left myself six minutes to tell you two of the hardest verses in the Bible to explain. Jordan's gonna come waltzing into my office on Monday and tell me how much time I spent anyway. You need to hear this and I'll, I'll tell you. The third in the, these phrases is this. You will receive the intimacy and empowerment of the Spirit of Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission. You will receive the intimacy and empowerment of the Spirit to fulfill the Great Commission mission. So, peace with God is the foundation. Sent in the same way as Jesus was sent is the how-to. But here's the power. The power is in the receiving of the Holy Spirit to do the gospel. Now here's where this gets hard. Let's just first of all understand that Jesus so loves us and so loved them that he couldn't bear to be away from them. Nor can he bear to be away from us. And therefore, the spirit of Jesus is promised. So I'm going to be going away. You guys know this. I've told you this before. I'm going to be going away. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I want to be with you, and I will be with you. The spirit of Jesus will be with you. Now, some ask the question, so did these guys receive the spirit of Jesus right then? And my studied conclusion is, yes, no. What do you all think? Yes? No. Don't know. Chicken. I say no. In Acts 1, 4, 5, Jesus said, wait for the promise which you heard from me. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here's what happened with most of your translations that's got you confused. I don't know why they did this, but the, trans the, the translation is not, and with that he breathed on them. It just says, and with that he breathed and was saying to them. Now I know why, I'm pretty certain I know why John said it this way. Because John has a Jewish audience. Gentiles too, but he has a Jewish audience that he's trying to connect the Old Testament realities with the New Testament moment. The Jesus moment. And the Holy Spirit the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, particularly at creation, was to breathe the breath of life into humanity. 
John is here connecting the work of the Holy Spirit going forward in the Great Commission with the breath of God in creation, breathing new creation life into them. But we do not have two comings of the Holy Spirit, two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. We have the one at Pentecost 50 days later, and this is the promise, again, being reiterated by Jesus. I'm saying to you, you know, you know Jesus says, I am, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, and with that he breathed. <gasps> I think in, not out. Receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, when I leave and the Holy Spirit comes, Welcome him. You need him. He's going to be in you. He's going to indwell you to advance the work of God in your sanctification and in mission. The world cannot have the Holy Spirit. The distinction, the key distinction between believers and unbelievers is whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers cannot have the Holy Spirit. Only believers have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit today living in you, you're not a believer. It's a fact that believers can't live without the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit. He takes up permanent residence as us. John writes in his epistle, 1 John 4:13, by this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit enables us to bear witness to the truth of this, to advance the gospel. So, discipleship, listen, is genuine belief, faith in Christ, and the indwelling of the Son of God. That's true discipleship. That's the reality. And, and I, I have some backup evidence, and I, I'll quickly point it out to you, but, but not only what, what's said in Acts, but, but so, some of the disciples were missing. At least Thomas was missing. He's not going to give the Spirit out without the disciples all being there. Secondly, Jesus was still with them when he said this. He told them they would receive the Spirit when he left. He hasn't left yet. And, and the final thing for me is, they were still one week later huddled in fear, locked down. Now, we know that once they received the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, they went out as bold evangelists. They were still in lockdown, in fear, and decided to go fishing. This doesn't sound like guys who were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not that fishing's a problem. But in that context, they were supposed to go fishing for men and women. Okay. One, one last thing. And if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Listen, when you're trying to un understand what this is, because this has been a, a bone of contention between the Catholic tr church tradition and Protestantism for a long time. This is not giving license to absolution to the church. We are not granted some sort, sort of of authority from Jesus here to absolve people of sins. 
The theology of sin in the Word of God is quite simple. Only God can forgive sins. Now, we can forgive people who've sinned against us. In fact, we're called to do that. But we can't forgive sins against Almighty God. That's what Jesus did by dying on the cross, and that's what repentance is all about. Unless you repent, you are not forgiven of your sins. So what is Jesus telling the guys that they're going to be doing and commissioning the disciples of Jesus Christ that we're going to be doing? Well, to make it, I think, fairly simple and not make it too complicated, we announce that forgiveness is available to those who repent. That's the proclamation of the gospel. And we likewise announce that the gospel is not available to those who refuse to repent and they will not be forgiven. Now, how practical is that? It's very practical. We have all kinds of so-called apostate churches out there absolving people of sin that is actually sin. We have all kinds of churches out there, so-called churches, that are allowing people to live their lives in sin, blatant sin that is recorded in the scripture, and declare to them that they're in good stead with God. That's counter to what Jesus is saying here. You know, we, we live in a society where people say, you can't judge me, although everybody's judging everybody right now and canceling everybody. It's such a, it's such a mess. If, if, ah, forget it. Anyway, um, <laughs> just, ah, just, I, can, I can hardly deal with it anymore, but, but, but there are some simple things. If anybody looks me in the face and says, you can't judge me, I immediately say, I have every right to judge you according to the word of God and according to the authority that is given to me by God himself to declare to you that if you don't turn from your sins, you will burn in hell. That's exactly what we have been given here by Jesus. That's his teaching. If you forgive anyone, literally it says here, if you forgive anyone, they, it, it's all, it already been forgiven. It's a tense that's being used here in the verb that doesn't show up very well. It's those who repent are already forgiven in heaven. So forgive them. Those who repent of their sins, forgive them. Those who refuse to forgive of their sins, there's nothing to forgive. So don't forgive them. That's the agency with which we proclaim the gospel. It's... it's, the boldness with which I get on the platform on every, any given Sunday morning and deliver the gospel to you. And it is this. I'm delivering to you the truth and the offer of salvation. You can repent and receive it and be forgiven and be among the people who are forgiven and be forgiven among the people or you can refuse and reject it and remain in unrepentance and not be forgiven. It's a take it or leave it proposition. And I have no problem declaring that because I think that's the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the gospel is available. So repent. In fact, Peter follows through with this in the sermon that's recorded in Acts when he says, repent and each one of you uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't say, I forgive you. Now, Peter was there when Jesus delivered this. 
Peter knew exactly what Jesus was telling him. Go and proclaim the gospel. Call people to repentance and they will be forgiven. If they don't repent, they will not be forgiven. That's what this means, simply. We are agents of that message. And we are invited to be bold in our culture and churches that refuse to entertain the idea that those who consist, consistently persist in sinfulness and unrepentance are okay with God. They are not. They are unforgiven by God. And if you die unforgiven by God, you will spend all of eternity in torment and hell. That's the truth of the gospel. But today is the day of salvation. Today, Jesus offers you peace with God and the peace of God. He shows you his nail-scarred hands and his pierced side. He stands before you, a risen and alive Savior, and invites you to have new life in Christ. No one hearing this message should go to hell. You can receive salvation today. Father, I pray and ask you, on the basis of your word, and your commission to us that you would take the truth of your word and bring it alive in the hearts and lives of those who are here. For your great name's sake, I pray. Amen and amen. Allow me to bring you some concluding joy and hope that, that I discovered in uh, reading through how John Piper handled this particular section of scripture. He pointed out that Jesus came and stood in their midst. The doors were locked, the barriers were up. Because Jesus can go where no one else can go. And so regardless of the circumstances you know or people you know who seem to be too far to reach or too barricaded in, Jesus can go where no one else can go. And Jesus faced those men with, and maybe there were some women with them, perhaps there were, I suspect there were, with great fear in their eyes and offered them his peace. I don't know about you, but I'm afraid lots of times. I'm afraid of what might happen or what this is coming or that's coming. I'm afraid lots of times. And the beauty of this is Jesus didn't wait for their faith to chase away their fear. He came to them in their fear and granted them strength in their faith to chase the fear away. Jesus will come to you in your fear if you call on him. And Jesus also appeared right in their midst. He doesn't stand at the periphery. He's not standing on the sidelines of your life. He came and stood right in the very midst of the people who needed him. Jesus will be there for you as well if you call on him. This is the Jesus we take to the world. So beloved, experience all that he has for you and give it away to people desperately need Jesus. If ever the world was in need of Jesus Christ, is it not now? Oh Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. He is our Lord. He is our joy. He is our everlasting life. 
And we love you, Lord. And I pray that you'll embolden us and strengthen us for the journey and the mission. In Jesus' name, amen.